You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Health Hub. I am your host, Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we'd like to welcome you to the show this morning. Today, we are live, so feel free to tweet or call in if you have any questions. Our number is 416. What is our number, Alex? 416. I don't even know. 245-1534. You think I would know that off by heart. So feel free to call in. You can tweet at us at Kathy underscore Biasse. How's your week been, Alex? Very relaxing, for sure. Very relaxing. I know, it, I know it's the very beginning of the week, as it's Tuesday, but I took some time off for myself this weekend, did a bit of uh, weight training, and oh a bit my of uh, piano playing. Oh! Had a bit of fun, for sure. So, okay, are those new hobbies? Um, well... The weight training is a bit infrequent, but oh. it's start- something I started in <laughs> high school. <laughs> but the piano is something that I started with when I was younger, and then I've since moved on to uh, playing the trombone and, and drums, but none of them I can do with any sort of... Uh, I'm not that adequate with it. Oh, I'm sure but you're better than But it's just um, a lot of the time, because of my disability, I have trouble with... Uh, with playing the right side of the keyboard because uh-huh. of my right hand. So I play by ear quite a bit. And so I'm uh, less that I way, bet I you're, That's something I didn't know about. You see, you learn something every day. You and do. I've already learned mine before 11 a.m. <laughs> I can pack it in now. <laughs> okay, so let's start off with our foodie section. And today I want to give you an outline of how to put a great smoothie together. So there are, in my estimation, six components to a good smoothie, and I will read them off here for you slowly. But if you need to uh, get back to me and if you have any questions, you can contact us, email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. So for your smoothie, you would like to pick something from each of the following groups. So you want to pick a fruit. I like berries. Berries are my fruit of choice, and they can be fresh or frozen. If you have them frozen, um, you need less ice. So your choice, whatever you'd like to do. I don't mind. I buy my berries on sale and I freeze them. So I take them out frozen. Um, Then pick your liquid. So you can use something either in the area of a water, a coconut water. You can use kefir. You can use unsweetened uh, non-dairy milk. Pick one of those. Then pick your fat. Fat is important and often the thing that a lot of people miss out. Fat's important in your diet, people. Um, and that's a show that we actually should look into, Alex. Fat is very yeah, important. There's, there's a lot of you know healthy fats that we need for sure. Exactly. So in that realm of healthy fats, and I'm just giving you a few to get you started. Coconut oil, awesome. You could use a nut butter, so an almond butter, a hemp butter. Hemp isn't a nut, but you could use a cashew butter. Hemp is a seed butter. You could use avocado, or you could use a full-fat coconut milk as, as your liquid. I wouldn't do the whole smoothie in a coconut milk, but you could use some coconut milk. Then you want to pick your greens. So if you're new on the smoothie front, um, an easy green to start with is spinach. As you move into the likes of kale, it gets a little bit more hardcore, but I do like kale. You can use wheatgrass. Um, That's a tough one, but some people do put that in your smoothie. That's not one that I like, but just throwing that out there for you. Or uh, Swiss chard. And then you want your boosters. So things like a whey protein, a flaxseed, a chia seed, a hemp seed. Those are all boosters. They add fats. They add fiber to your diet, and we often don't get enough fiber. I think we've talked about that. And then you can go as far as adding some herbs. These can be things like a ginger or a turmeric. Turmeric I love. Again, if you're new on the smoothie frontier, go easy with turmeric or ginger. They can be awfully... um, Awfully, what is the word? Strong, strong on the flavor palette. So, so graduate up to these things. I also suggest you keep a journal because 
some you know you'll like some types of smoothies and other types of smoothies yeah, no. you won't like and then there's one there's those days that you forget what what you put into your smoothie and exactly. then you can't you can't necessarily get that back yeah and it's always know, good to write it write, is good write to write, write it sure. down and there are different ways to go. You can go with more of a, a chocolatey banana, like cacao banana way. So uh, I, there are certain f- textures that I don't like. Um, I personally don't like an avocado in my smoothie. I just don't like the texture. I know how healthy they are. But as I said, write them down. Uh, write your, make your little journal. And smoothies are a great thing um, to incorporate. You don't have to do it every day, but it's a great sort of a, a kitchen sink thing where you can throw in lots of nutrients and and really get your, your day off to a good start. You could also, you know, have it as a snack, though, whatever you choose. The other thing I want to let you know is the way you load your blender is important, too. So you really want to go from the soft to the hardest. So your, your fruits and your juices first, and then uh, on top you want to put your ice. And again, consistency is is something of choice. Some like it thicker, some like it thinner. So so do judge. Okay, so that's it for smoothies. Hope you um, took some information out of that. Now, on to today's show. When we are born, the first of our senses to come into our, our life game is our sense of touch. Um, and different from our other senses, touch is a sense, that, a sense that is all over our body to varying degrees. Our sense of touch helps us to experience and understand our environment, to feel pleasure and pain, and to help us bond with each other. Of great interest, though, to research is is how pain is differentially processed in the brain, the factual component of of touch. So what I'm talking about here maybe is the sense of pain, uh, hot, rough, and the affective or emotional um, component of touch. Our guest today is Lydia Denworth. Lydia is a New York-based author, journalist, and speaker who writes about how we think, learn, and connect. She is the author of two acclaimed books of popular science and is at work on a third about the biology and evolution of friendship. She is a regular contributor to Scientific America and writes the Brainwaves blog <coughs> excuse me, for Psychology Today. Her work has also appeared in a wide range of national publications, including Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and Parents. Lydia has written and researched extensively on the subject of effective touch and will join us when we return shortly from our break.
Are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, we are live. If you would like to talk to Lydia today or myself, please feel free to call in at 416-245-1534. You can also tweet at us at Kathy underscore Biasi. And do uh, take a look at our Facebook and our Instagram page. We are on Instagram at, at The Health Hub. RMC. Actually, it's at, yeah, the Health Hub RMC. I'm having a bit of trouble with our contact information today, Alex. Anyways, welcome to the show, Lydia. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate the time you're taking to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Now, you have quite a pedigree in your career, and we're, we're talking now uh, in our interview more about the science end of it, but have you always been a scientific writer? Uh, not at all. Oh. No. Uh, <laughs> I um, I guess you could say I I morphed mid career to be a science writer. I've been a journalist though my whole life, really high school, college, and then out of college. I but I worked as a more general interest magazine reporter. I did feature things. I worked for Newsweek as a reporter. I even worked for People Magazine in London um, for four years when Princess mm-hmm. Diana was there and when she died. Um, so that is a long way from what I do now. But my heart was always in kind of in health and children and social important social issues, and that is really how I ended up coming to science um, about 10, 15 years ago. Um, through sort of children's health issues in my first book, um, which was about lead poisoning and a doctor and a scientist who sort of fought industry to talk about environmental toxins. And so um, I found that I really enjoyed it. I was good at it. I I like translating um, the important information about science to to people. And it's it's a great way to spend my days learning all the time. It's a talent reading those um, research studies and trying to make them put them into layman's terms for people like us. I've I've tried to do some of that myself, and it's <laughs> it's that must be a whole level of schooling that um, that you had to take on just in that aspect of it all. I have sitting above my desk things like Science One Hundred and One, Neuroscience <laughs> for Dummies. <laughs> I'm oh, not thank proud. you for making. <laughs> I, yes, I let me be honest, and I, I tell my my I have three teenagers and. Uh, I explained to them how I, I have to spend every day kind of looking things up and piecing together what they mean. And, you know, obviously I've gotten better at it and I'm much more familiar, but, um, but it, yes, it's a challenge. Well, a you know, one. in preparing for the show, that not let me too be truthful, um, I was looking up the actual meaning of effective touch, which we are going to be talking about, and it said, you know, two of the words that were grouped together were hedonic valence, and I'm thinking, <laughs> hedonic valence, okay. So I had to look yes. up the word hedonic. I had to look there up the word. Go. Yeah. So you know what? It is. It is. Um, it's well worth it, though. I mean, the the little. Well, tidbits. if scientists are are, it's almost like they're, they're they feel it's required that they speak in this jargon. That you know, it's it's the way they speak to each other, but it really doesn't translate to the public. So I do feel that I have an essential job. It is essential. And you know what? Those books for dummies are not, are not anything to laugh at because I have no, two of them myself. <laughs> they are critical. They are critical. Now, you refer to yourself as a speaker, a writer, or sorry, an author and a journalist. What is the difference between an author and a journalist? I did not think there was a difference early on in my career, but I have come to decide that there is. So as an author, that's for my books. Um, a journalist, you're really a reporter, you're observing the world, and you're telling people about what you see. And of course, I'm doing that in my books as well. But in books, you're taking a little bit more of a stand, um, even though I'm quite rigorous about everything I do being based in um, in science and in evidence, I, you know, you, you make claims to some extent, and you're, and also in the world of social media these days, uh, an author is, um, it's a different kind of mm-hmm. brand, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, so all of us uh, sort of news reporters have had to figure out how to operate in a different world. But it, it's, I, I think of it as allowing me to, to come at the work in two different ways. Do you prefer one to the other? Do you still do the, um, the reporting? I do. Um, sure, I do. So I, I 
right just today when I hang up with you, I'm going to be writing up a quick news story for Scientific American. Um, and so I'm freelancing all the time. And I'm a freelance writer. I work for myself, but I, I write for magazines uh, and um, a lot. And then I often have a book going, as you mentioned. I have a, another book I'm working on now that is... Um, won't be out for a while, and it'll be out in 2019. But, um, uh, but so I'm ba- I have to balance. I go back and forth between the long-term projects and the short-term projects. How long does it take to put a book together? <laughs> um, usually, when you get a contract, you often have maybe about a year and a half, year, year and a half, to write it. But you've done a lot of work before then. I mean, non I, I write nonfiction, obviously. I write sort of literary narrative science is the, what it's called. So I'm telling stories, but um, with a lot of information mm-hmm. packed in there. Um, and so, and I am very slow to work out exactly what, how to frame my ideas or what I want to say. So it often takes me maybe two years to get a proposal together for the book and then to sell it to a publisher. And then, um, but then, so by the time I'm I'm sort of being paid to do the work. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm part way, you know. I'm part way there, mm-hmm. um, and then it's almost another year after you turn it in before, with the editing and production and um, marketing that works before books appear and on um, bookshelves and stores and on Amazon and so forth. So your your books are are science based, but they have the social issue related to the science. It's an interesting take. Why did you decide to to go at it from this angle? Well, I think that science, um, when I say social issues and science is what I cover, I mean where science intersects with society, kind of. Now, this new book I'm working on about friendship is a different kind of social. It's really about social behavior and the way we interact with each other. But but science and social issues, that's why science is important, because it speaks to so much of who we are as a society, as communities, what we do in the world, both sort of intimately and in, and in the grand scheme of things. Um, it speaks to how we make policy as governments and um, how, we, you know, how we should set up our, our lives, I guess, mm-hmm. um, from our families to our communities to our larger, you know, to our countries, our nations if I'm not being too grand there. Well, you know, it just, you know, I'm just thinking of the process. I don't want to delay getting into our topic, but I'm just thinking of the process of you writing this book and having to continually refer to studies. By the time you get through the two years, do you have to go and revisit some of your studies and update them? Is this a continual process for you? Um, sure, it is. Although, often, you know, a book, you have to stop at some point with a book, and you know with science the, the, the work is going to continue. I mean, the nature of science is that it's, it's a constant process of questioning what we know and how we know it and how well we know it, and then moving forward. And so it, by definition, it changes and it builds over time. And so you kind of have to make your peace with the fact that you're never going to have the last word mm-hmm. um, in science. And so usually when a book comes out, people understand that, you know, and you might even say in there, depending on um, the, the topic, you might say, you know, um, as I'm writing this, X or Y is true, um, but it, you know, it might not be true in a year mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but I do, the obviously, the subjects that I'm interested in and that I pursue, I, I do tend to keep up with um, mm-hmm. and, you know, do, do more research uh, as, as and when it's warranted. Fair enough. Now let's get into um, our topic at hand. And I think maybe the, the starting point for us, the launching point for us, is maybe you could take some time and really under, under, help us to understand the, the biology of touch. I mean, I just gave a brief introduction, um, but we need to learn so much more about a sense probably that maybe of, of all of our senses is maybe less understood or less appreciated. I think that's true, and it's, it's been less researched um, by scientists as well. Um, and so touch is, is, obviously we have five senses. We know the most about vision, and then there's hearing, there's um, taste and smell. I, I suppose maybe touch, taste, and smell are all kind of the secondary <laughs> to vision and hearing in terms of what we know and how we think about it. But, but touch is really essential, and it is, as you mentioned in the introduction, it is 
the first, it's the most developed sense when we're born. And it, the way to think of it is that the skin is really an organ um, and that it's our one of our main ways of experiencing and processing the world as we come into contact with it. Um, but touch is not just one thing. There is a whole system of different nerve fibers and of receptors in our skin that the receptors take in information and pass it along these different nerve fibers. There's probably about 20 kinds of touch receptors in our skin to take stuff in. But then, and then there are several different kinds of nerve fibers. And, and I'm just going to talk about kind of a handful, the most important, but the, the way to think of it is a lot of people, when they think about touch, they just think about, you know, well, I touch this table and I know that it's hard and if, you know, maybe I can tell it's probably made of wood or something like that. Um, and the difference between something that's hard, something that's soft, um, you know, is that is all what's called discriminatory touch. It's allowing you to discriminate from one thing to in, between one thing and another. And that is handled by a kind of fiber called A-beta. I'll try to stay away from the jargon, but it's, it's, it's useful to... Uh, to, in this case, um, to give them their scientific name. So mm-hmm. A-beta fibers are, um, they're myelinated, so they're covered with this fatty sheath that basically prote- protects the signal that they send, and it allows it to travel really quickly from wherever you touch something up to the brain. And um, and it's, uh, that the, the difference, it's basically it's because the brain needs to understand needs that information really quickly. And that includes some aspects of pain um, and temperature that wear so that if you stick your finger on a hot pan, your A-beta fibers are the ones that are telling you right away to move your finger off that pan. But then there's another set of fibers called C-fibers, and they control other aspects of pain. So, for instance, the fact that it might be a few seconds before, after you pick your finger up from that hot pan, it's a few seconds before it really starts to hurt, that's because there's the C-fibers are unmyelinated, so they don't have that fatty sheath um, protecting them. And so things move more slowly, uh, but they get to the brain and they sort of carry a different kind of information, a more emotional kind of information. And just to sort of give people a sense of what the difference between myelinated and unmyelinated is a little bit like wrapping the hot water pipes in your house with uh, insulation. It it keeps the heat in, it keeps, you know, it, it makes it more efficient, makes the system more efficient. So same thing in the brain. Uh, you know, myelinated fibers are more efficient. They've been wrapped in insulation essentially, right? Um, and so in addition, in the C fibers, the unmyelinated fibers, there's pain, there's itch, and now there is this other set of C fibers that have only recently been um, really sort of discovered and understood, and they're called C tactile afferents, which is a very technical name, but all it means is tactile for touch, and afferent means it's sending a signal to the brain. Um, but what they're thought to do is to control emotional our emotional touch Um, and they actually travel they send their signals to a different part of the brain than all those other um, fibers that I've just mentioned so most of touch is controlled in something called the somatosensory cortex that runs across the top of your head Um, and it's you know so where you're processing how you touch the world but these these CT fibers we'll call them for short um, and is they travel to a part of the brain that really is, that primarily they travel to a part of the brain that is associated with emotion and with the, the social brain, really. Um, and so that is something that nobody understood until just in the last 10 to 15 years. And, and so it's this whole new, as one of the scientists describes them, it's, they're a new kid on the block, and, and they really might explain a lot about how we interact with the world that we didn't that we didn't understand before. When we talk about, so this is the area of affective touch, this last area that you're talking about. Yes, so this is affective touch, exactly. You can call it affective touch, you can call it emotional touch or gentle touch, Um, but yes, affective means that it has to do with how we feel. So in a sense, it's, it's not sensing but feeling this set of nerve fibers. It's a different kind of touch. What is the significance of affective touch? Well, first of all, it, biologically, it's different. So mm-hmm. it is, as I said, it travel, it, it 
sends its signals to this different part of the brain. There's a part of the brain that's known as the social brain now, and it's it's a network, and it includes, for people who are interested in these things, it includes places like the insula, the superior temporal sulcus, and the amygdala. Maybe people have heard of the amygdala. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a network that, that sort of speaks to how we socialize and how we interact in, in the world. And so these CT fibers travel there, but they're also found in different places on the body than um, than some of these other fibers that I talked about. So if you look at your hand or your arm and you hold it up, you can look on your palm and there's no there's no hair, right? That's it's that that skin, your palm, your lips, the soles of your feet are very very heavy in the A beta fibers, the ones that that tell you just give you factual information about the world you're touching. Um, those myelinated fast fast-touch fibers, right? Um, and your hairy skin, your arm, your back, shoulders, um, that is where they have found these high concentrations of CT fibers. And um, they are especially tuned, or, you know, they're, they're very particular. <laughs> they like a certain gentle, stroking, caressing kind of touch, very much like what a mother gives to a newborn baby. It's around three to five centimeters per second is the, the stroking rate that, that they prefer. They prefer skin temperature. And they and what they do is they respond. When I say they prefer, I, I'm saying that they, they activate most strongly. You know, they get really excited. <laughs> and they start sending signals to the brain um, in those kinds of conditions especially. And so the, the idea, the, the thinking is that they're concentrated in these parts of the body that are different from the parts of the body that, um, you know, that are controlling other kinds of touch. Um, and that there's a reason for that. It's that, you know, if you think about how you, I don't know, like uh, how, how nice it feels if somebody pats you on the back or, you know, puts their arm around your shoulder or um, that that's, this is, Part of what's going on is that you're actually experiencing physiologically, you're experiencing that touch differently. Well, you know what? My children will understand very nicely now. You know, I love to get my head rubbed. I love to have my hair brushed. Yes. So, so they're, they're going to get a good understanding of why. When we, come, when we come back from our break, we're going to continue with this fascinating uh, conversation with Lydia Denworth. We'll be right back. New mercies provided for me I have decided The enemy won't win today There's new mercies I have decided The enemy won't win today Fight for me Totally humiliate my enemy He will take what was broken Remind me I'm chosen Give me the faith To stand on my feet and say God is Everything to me His breath is the treasure in me Oh, created with purpose My focus is all that He needs Say, I'm not forgotten
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are here today with our guest, Lydia Denworth, and we're talking about effective touch. So much to talk about, Lydia. I want to make sure that we at least touch upon everything that is that is so relevant. Well, we won't be touching everything, but let's try and get to as much as we can. Yes. So you talked about effective touch um, being uh, all over our body. Where is it not? Where is effective so, touch yeah, not? So it's not in the palms, any part of your body that doesn't have hair on it. So the palm, most of the palms of your hands, the soles of your feet, there's, there don't seem to be any of these CT fibers there. Um, and, but, but what's really important to understand about them is that, you know, the thinking is that these, this whole system of touch is part of what helps to develop uh, the social brain. And it begins with that critical relationship between the baby and probably the mother or primary caregiver. But, um, but it, it's sending information to, the, you know, social brain needs inputs to develop. It needs information to come in. And, um, and we might be able to, I mean, it, well, actually, let me just say, too, that it does another thing is it helps with something. Here's another technical term, but there's something called interoception, which is essentially your sense of your own body, whether the way that you know that you're hungry or that you're tired. Um, and they think that this CT system is involved in that as well. Um, and it gives you a sense of yourself versus other people, um, that a sense of you and me, you know, kind mm-hmm. of. Um, and um, but, but the thing is that understanding this gives us this window in, and what's really interesting is kids with autism spectrum disorder have been found um, to have a different kind of response from typically developing kids. So they do not show the same activity in response to those gentle stroking touches. And, and we've, lo- we've known for a while that sensory perception is um, something that goes awry with things like autism spectrum disorder. And the thinking is that if this new system of, of CT fibers is it might actually be kind of a way, a biomarker, a way of checking very early an indicator that that a child might be likely to develop autism more fully as they grow. And so it could be, I, I hesitate to say yet that we can have therapies using touch, you know, but, mm-hmm. but that, that could happen. Um, and I'm sure people, listeners, will be wanting to ask and say, well, what does this mean about touch therapies and massage and things like that? Um, and so we should talk about that. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that we can use this new information to kind of separate fact from fiction on this. There are a lot of things that, a lot of claims have been made for touch, and I, I happen to suspect that a lot of them are true. But unfortunately, a lot of the, the, the studies that have um, tried to say that, you know, say massage does X, Y, and Z, have not been very rigorously done. And, and understanding this touch system in this different way, I think um, scientists are quite excited because they feel like, you know, now we have a chance to, to really try to um, sort of examine the, the, the underpinnings of, of some of what might be happening. And it's also important to say that massage, I mean, so a lot of therapeutic massage is actually a different, more um, stronger touch. And, in, in, you know, it's, um, it's stimulating blood flow. It's releasing things in muscles. That's different from That's what not effective about. touch. That's not effective touch. Um, it's pleasurable, and it, and, and it probably has, it may also be stimulating at times, this, these, this effective touch system, but it's, it's not the exact same thing. So I just want people to understand that. Now, going back to what you were speaking about as uh, a possible uh, indicator for uh, a child being on the autistic spectrum. Would this be from birth, where touch is not appreciated at birth, the neurophysiology at birth, or can this develop by a lack of effective touch as a child is developing? It's, it's, it's probably both, but it does seem that, um, that this, I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's still a lot to be, worked out in this but um and i don't want to say that i a child 
may be from birth less responsive to touch, and that may be a sign. And so, but what they can do is they can actually look now and they can image the brain and they can see how the brain responds to this kind of touch. And they think they might be able to do that in the very first months of life um, and see a difference, recognize a difference um, between a kid who is going to go on to um, be diagnosed with autism and, and a kid who isn't. Um, and it's, um, and so, but it also develops with experience. And so babies are sensitive to it right from birth, but they get more sensitive to it as they grow. And kids continue, it, it in, the response increases with age. Um, so it's both. It's very much, which is where science is now. We really completely understand that, that it's not just genes or, or environment, it's both. So the whole idea that there's nature versus nurture is just wrong. They're both, and they've always been both, and they work together. And this is an example of that. So, and it is, has been found that mothers who are, touch their kids more frequently um, have kids who have more activity in the social um, networks of their brains. Fascinating. Fascinating. That was at five years old, the study that I read about that. Um, but so it tells you from birth to age five, you know, they're getting, yeah, they're getting signals and um, they're getting, their brains are growing and learning and deciding which neurons should connect to the others. And so that's when I said the social brain needs input. It needs experience in order to kind of wire itself up appropriately. What happens if a child does not now, we're not talking about any sort of autistic spectrum child, but a child who was born that may not get that experience with touch right from right. the get-go. What happens in so that? There's really two possibilities there. One, ha- one, and this is some of the most, uh, it's really difficult to read it even now, but, you know, kids in orphanages, uh, probably everyone's familiar with the kind of horror stories out of Romanian orphanages. It's now thought that a big part of what, I mean, something like 75% of kids died in in orphanages where they weren't and what what's now understood is that they were lacking human connection and physical touch probably most of all um they were um so that's one thing the second thing is of course premature babies in um in neonatal intensive care units and that there's been a shift but not entirely and so you know for a long time hospitals were so worried about infection that they would they keep babies in these incubators and they keep the parents away from them, or they used to. So in some places that has really changed and they have started to encourage um, mothers to hold those neonatal infants and, and go ahead and either get them out of the incubators or hold them in, you know, touch them inside. But that's not as widespread as we want to believe. And so that's, that, I think, is the sort of other kind of situation where um, this information, if we can understand this science better, it can help propel. I mean, there should not be one child in a NICU unit who isn't held, in my, by my, in my view. <laughs> can, can we catch up, do you think? Or is, is this something that, you know, beyond the age of five, a child might be permanently disadvantaged? Um, I have to say that it's pretty important what happens in those first years of life. Um, it's not, uh, it's, it's, I don't know, I hesitate to say that, yeah. it's, that it's over <laughs> after uh-huh. that, um, but I do think it's really important, and that's uh, the evidence we've seen is that um, what, you know, if, if, if children do not develop their, all of these sensory systems, their, the vision and hearing and, and, um, and touch, sense of touch, and um, very early on, in the, um, they, you know, they often struggle uh, mm-hmm. in different ways. Now, there are, that, that doesn't always, um, there are ways around it, there are, and, and understanding it later um, helps, and, you know, if, uh, but, but there's no substitute for early and mm-hmm. often. The formative years. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Now, as we get older, um, our touch, our touch sense changes. Do we still need effective touch for our for our brain health, or does it become something that we just crave for the pleasure of holding a hand or getting you know our head stroked? Yeah, it's more that it's so you know the way the brain we we now understand the brain. Originally, they thought the brain was set at birth, right? We came out of the womb and and we were organized, and that. And then we figured out in the middle of the twentieth century that that there were these sensitive periods for development, 
Uh, and so different brain systems, different networks have different sensitive periods. So vision gets wired up pretty quickly and hearing a little later, but there are windows of time and they, cl- they tend to close for some things. Other things are a little more plastic, maybe for the term, you know, brain plasticity. Mm-hmm. It's the brain's ability to change with experience over time. And so this would get to this question of, you know, if you didn't get this, um, affective touch properly at birth, but you get it later. Um, you know what happens? Can that can it wire up? It it um, you know I don't. We haven't known about it long enough to really see that. But except for what I mentioned about autistic kids seeing that in fact they do react differently. Um, the we, what we need as adults, and the brain keeps developing. So into adolescence, we now understand that that there's um, another wave of what happens is neurons grow and there's a lot of activity and then they get pruned back with experience. So things that, parts of your brain that don't get used or paths, you could think of it like hiking paths that are cleared and regularly uh, walked on, you know, are, are they, they survive and then others get grown over, grow over with weeds and things like that. And so the same thing happens in the brain. And so there are these waves of especially busy activity in that brain formation. And now we know that it keeps going well into our 20s. So your teenagers are not done. <laughs> they tell you they're 18 and they, you know, they know everything. They're not. They're not done until 25. The top, the, the sort of prefrontal cortex that controls the uh, um, our, our, our higher order thinking, our ability to control our impulses and to analyze and to be reasonable um, isn't really fully cooked until we're about in our mid-20s. Um, but, so, but even after that, affective touch is then feeding, if it's been developed properly over all this time, it is feeding those sensory, that, that those parts of the brain that, that speak to emotion and, um, and to connection. Now, I hesitate to say, I mean, so I don't know how it is in Canada, but here in America right now, you're probably aware that we're in the midst of a lot of discussion about inappropriate touching and powerful mm-hmm. men and women. We're so very aware. Make, mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I want to make clear that there's a difference. And actually, this is an important point, is that context matters. So being stroked, you know, at the right sort of three to five centimeter per second um, rate on your arm is very pleasurable. But if your top-down part of your brain, so if the the context of if it's some creepy guy on the subway or it's your boss who's 40 years older than you and has power over your career, you your brain has the power to say, yeah, this is not nice. This is not pleasurable. And so, you know, so uh, there is a difference. Context matters, and our brain is able to sort of override um, the the sense of something as pleasant if, in fact, it's it's inappropriate. That said... Touch is really critical, and we, sh- we, we shouldn't shy away from it altogether, you know. We, we, we should, um, and so I, I, you know, I don't want to wade into a political discussion, but, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, the science is telling us that touch does matter. That's all I'm, I guess that's, I'll leave it at that. Well, it <laughs> also, I, I, from what you're saying, this, this early development of effective touch, would it help us in later years to decipher appropriate touch? Yes. Yes, yes, it should. It should, um, and uh, sure. I mean, it, but but more than that, it's really fundamental to developing our whole to deciphering social interaction at all. You know, mm-hmm. all of it, um, whether you know um, somebody is a friend or a stranger, and what's appropriate an appropriate way to behave with them accordingly. And uh, and so it isn't just about wiring up your sense of touch; it's about wiring up your whole social self. Well, to put it in perspective, I think maybe 10 to 15 years of knowing about this is fairly short term, is it not, Lydia? It's absolutely. And and in that 10 to 15 years, I mean, part of it was they identified these fibers, but then they didn't know what they were for. Like, they said, well, why do we have these? It doesn't make sense. They don't respond. And it's taken the, the, the last 10 years to really nail down what what they're for. Mm-hmm. Um, now, where so do you yes, see therapy great. going with with this advance in, in our understanding? Well, so I just last week was speaking to one of the main researchers in this area, and he's very excited about um, about doing exactly what I, I said before, about taking, separating facts from fiction and using this not new knowledge as a way to rigorously test um, 
various kinds of alternative medicine that involve touch. That's one thing that we can now do where we might... So, for instance, he's teamed up with some osteopathic physicians who are studying massage of babies in in the hospital and um, asking how much is the osteopathy, how much is this CT system wiring up for these babies. They do seem to be getting out of the hospital earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can try to say why. I mean, because one of the things about science is the difference between correlation and causation, right? So if two things, one thing happens and something else happens at the same time, you can't, it's hard to say for sure whether one caused the other, right? You can say that they're correlated, meaning that they are, in fact, happening, so they're related. And, and the strength of that correlation is something that we're often looking at um, because you cannot always draw a direct line of causation. But it's important, so that's why you do lots and lots of different studies in animals and people in lots of different ways. And if the evidence converges that, you know, these two things seem to go together all the time, then you can start to have a, a stronger theory about them being related. So this, this new information gives us a way of analyzing um, a lot of what's going on. And as I said, in autism, there's some people really excited about studying this in autism, mostly at the moment, not as a therapy, but as I said, as a way of finding a very early biological indicator Mm -hmm. of problems to come. And the earlier you know that, the more you can intervene early and wire up those brains in a different way, potentially. I'm going to ask a question here. It might be broaching on something that uh, I shouldn't. But uh, is there a difference between the touch of a mother and a touch of the father? Or is any touch, um, effective touch, appropriate? (laughs) Oh, I think, I mean, if we're talking about newborns here, what is essential is that a newborn be touched in this gentle, caressing, affective touch way. Um, And happily, most, the vast majority are, because it's it's actually a kind of natural, it's it's, um, rewarding for the mother as well. Mm -hmm. But the way you can think about it, actually, this touch, I should have said this earlier, is that it is rewarding, and we tend to do and seek out things that are rewarding to our brains. And so there's, that's why we think that this is, a, this is a more fundamental, like it's helping to drive us to connect with other people. And so the mother is usually the one, and of course if she's nursing and, you know, and the baby's been in her uterus for, for nine months, you know, they already have a different kind of bond. But a father, absolutely, or an adoptive mother or, you know, another primary caregiver, could immediately start holding the baby, you know, um, and the kangaroo care, you maybe have heard this term, is standing up and holding the baby chest to chest, skin Mm -hmm. to skin, and and caressing. And this is going to give us a new way of investigating all of that, what might be going on there, but it does seem clear that that it's really important. And it, it could be a father. It could be an adoptive mother. It does not absolutely have to be a biological mother. It's just that they have a head start. Okay. Fair enough. Now let's, uh, we're going to have to end here about the effective touch aspect of our, of our conversation. It's been fascinating because I want to take some time um, to talk about the new book that you're working on. And if you could yeah. let us know what that's about, I know that I'm sure there's certain aspects you can't share with us, but maybe you can give us a, an overview of what you're working on now. Well, so as we said at the beginning, it's, it's about the biology and evolution of friendship, um, but it, in fact, is very much related to this kind of science about touch. So I'm looking at the what we know about how our both physiologically and psychologically, to some extent, we respond to um, our social world. You could say that the book is kind of like the backstory of our social lives. <laughs> it's, um, it's explaining that there's a structure to the way our bodies are set up that, um, that leads to the function of having friends. And, and I'll also say this, that, um, that I, I think friendship it's kind of a template. It's a it's a model for how for a good quality relationship. And the um, anthro well, primatologists actually studying monkeys and and apes have discovered that the strength of social bonds um, is the number one variable that determines how long you live and what your reproductive success 
is. And so those are the two big sort of measures to say that something is is evolutionary, that it's adaptive, that there's a reason we're driven to do it. And the fact that we find these things in other species and not just in ourselves is um, is really interesting to me. And so I'm looking at all of this. I'm looking at things like how a baby's social brain is wired up early on, all the way to how we, how essential is it, how many friends do you need to have, what's the difference between um, romantic relationships and family relationships and friendships, and does there need to be a difference, does the new science blur the lines, things like that. Fascinating. We can expect that in 2019, I think I... That's right. Yep. Awesome. If all goes according if all to plan. goes according to plan. Now, this is on the back of two other very successful books you've written, Toxic Truth, A Scientist, A Doctor, and the Battle Over Lead, and yes. I Can Hear You Whisper, An Intimate Journey Through the Science and Sound of Language. So maybe you can end off the show, Lydia, with uh, a tip of the day for our listeners around what we've talked about. Hug the people you love. <laughs> Perfect. Um, it's as simple as that. It really is. That's awesome. Uh, thank you so much. It's been extremely informative hour. Again, if you'd like to contact us, please feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. If you'd like to find out more about Lydia's past projects and future projects, you can contact her or see what she's doing on her website, lydiadenworth.ca. Thank you again. No, it's LydiaDenworth.com. Uh, oh, no, oh, LydiaDenworth.com. Oh, Lydia I apologize. <laughs> LydiaDenworth.com. And it's L-Y-D-I-A. Denworth is D-E-N-W-O-R-T-H. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. We will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.